0: All right, uh, if you have your Bible, open and find John chapter 13. So this morning we'll be uh, beginning a new major section in John's gospel that, that will be the final major section. We sort of hit a hinge point last Sunday in chapter 12, and, and here we kick off this last major section. Aside from the post-resurrection narrative at the end of the gospel, Uh, The chapter we begin today, chapter 13, is sort of the beginning of what we call the upper room discourse, the upper room discourse between Jesus and his disciples in the hours before his death, recorded for us uh, beginning here uh, through the next few chapters. And we'll see, what we'll see, I think, um, well, I know, for the next several chapters, I know it's I know it's several chapters in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 17, Jesus' high priest. That's a lot of, a lot of chapters, but it's all taking place in one night. And uh, so what, we, what we're what we going to see here over the next several weeks in these chapters, uh, we can surmise are some of the most important things that Jesus says to his disciples of all the things that he said to him, Because these are the things that... He determined needed to be said sort of as the as the last things he was going to tell them uh, before he went to the cross with the hour of his death impending he knew it he knew time was short and so this is what he knew he needed to tell them so john 13 with a with a due heightened sense of urgency and expectancy uh, let's begin hearing what those final instructions were so if you found john 13 Our passage is going to be verses 1 to 20, uh, one of the most beautiful scenes in John's gospel. I want us to read it, and then I'll lay out what I hope we can take from it as we meditate on it for a few minutes. Follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. That's Psalm 41, 9. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And it's, it, even the places that are not clear in, in that place, there is in some other portion a clearer place that teaches the same truth it's your word therefore it comes to us authoritatively and inerrantly, by inspiration of your Holy Spirit sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness necessary because if we if you did not reveal these things to us they are beyond our discovery and so would you Lord give us eyes to see the truth in these words, would you please give us minds to understand the truth and, and uh, hearts to embrace the truth, love it, wills to obey whatever it leads and calls us to do. Give, give us all ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. All right, so looking at this passage, one of the things you notice right off the bat is that John mentions again that it was the Passover season. The weekend of the Passover was was there. And, and the significance of that of, uh, event, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the Passover today, but the significance of that timestamp is going to be more and more apparent as, the, as it goes along in, in John, uh, connected with Jesus' death. I, I think is setting the stage for Jesus to be the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Uh, but the groundwork for that is laid here, as the humility and the and the self sacrifice of Jesus uh, for his people is seen in a dramatic way. So, uh, read this and and thought about it all week and thought and thought about how to how to divide it up and and um, and and teach it and communicate what it's trying to say. Um, and I've told you uh, at different times. I don't know how, more, how what's the most recent time I've said this, but I've told you that one of the helpful things. Uh, to do. And I do it almost every time I study a passage in order to even just meditate on it or to teach it. I, d- I do two things for a lot of the passages, unless it's a long story in the Old Testament or something. Two things that I do. One, I'll read the passage. I'll, I'll go back through the passage and restate each verse in my own words. Uh, that's a helpful thing to know that I'm, I'm getting the gist of what the author is saying. If I can state it back in my own words it rivets in my mind, the flow of the narrative, the flow of the thought, argument, whatever. So I do that. But the second thing I do is then I just pepper it with questions. I just ask questions of the text. Quest, I'll ask questions even if I think I already know the answer. I'll ask the question anyway, because maybe I got it wrong. Maybe there's more to it than I initially see. I just ask questions of it. And here are, and I thought, well, why don't I just do that this morning? Why don't I just sort of get at three basic questions that I asked of this text and then those will be sort of our points today and we can, we can proceed through it in that way. Here are the simple questions that I asked of this passage in my study and they may sound overly simplistic but I promise you they are exactly the kinds of questions that can yield the most beautiful observations and helps you slow down enough in your study to see them. So even though you may know the immediately, immediately think you know the answers, I want us to sit for a minute on the answers. The first question is simply this, what did Jesus do? You read this passage and you step back and you start asking the questions, the first basic question, okay, what did Jesus do here? Now, the way you immediately answer this question in your mind may not be the primary way that this passage answers that question. Well, think about it. What, according to the text, did Jesus do here? Second, simply, how did he do it? How did he do it? This is the heart of the passage. So what did Jesus do? How did he do it? And finally, why did he do it? Uh, What was the purpose of what Jesus did here with his disciples? So simple questions to let you get to the root of what John tells us here. What did Jesus do? How did he do it? Why did he do it? Let's take those questions back to the text and begin with the first question. What did Jesus do? So to answer this question, I, th- I don't think that we need to go past the first three verses. In fact, to answer it, you really don't have to go past the first verse to say what Jesus did. But we'll take the first three in the question. And that may be surprising because if, if we just read this passage and then somebody asked you, okay, what did Jesus do in this passage? You would probably say he washed his disciples' feet. And you wouldn't be wrong. That is what Jesus did in this passage. But I don't believe that it's the whole answer. I don't even think it's the most fundamental answer uh, uh, to the question. What did Jesus do here? What is that? What is the more basic? Look again at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them. What did Jesus do? According to this verse, what did Jesus do? He loved his disciples. And John says he loved them to the end. Now that phrase, to the end, could be understood in at least a couple of different ways. On the one hand, it could be taken sort of figuratively. He loved them to the end, figuratively, as in he loved them to the uttermost. to the the max, perfectly, um, with the fullest and deepest love, to the end in that way. On the other hand, it it could be taken more literally, as in he loved his disciples to the end of his life, right? So um, he had loved his disciples throughout his ministry with them, throughout those, those three years, and, and now he was in the final hours of his life, and he didn't stop loving his disciples there. He loved them to the very last breath he breathed. I don't know uh, that we have to decide between those two senses. I don't know we have to decide which one was it. Did he mean that figuratively or, or literally? Uh, I don't think uh, we have to choose between the two, and it wouldn't be the first time in John's gospel if you've been with us even since the days of the tent out in the yard, um, that you, we've seen John do this again and again and again. He'll say one thing and mean more than one thing by it. Uh, the classic example I've, I've brought it up a couple of times is back in chapter three when when the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus, and it says at the early in the early uh, and maybe the first verse of that story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus, it said he came to Jesus at night at night. Now, uh, on the one hand, um, that, that, that is literally. Nicodemus probably did not want to be seen by his other, other uh, Pharisees. He wanted to come secretly, so he came under the cover of darkness. He came at night, right? But knowing how John, in his gospel, in his letters... First, second, and third John, and even in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote, how he uses light and darkness. You know, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Uh, you see that when John says he came at night, he also can mean it figuratively that there it was night in Nicodemus's soul. There was a darkness there. He didn't believe there was no life apart from faith in Christ in him, and I think we have a similar thing going on. Here, John deliberately uses a phrase in Greek that could mean both things. Jesus loved his disciples, Eis telos, meaning to the end, to the end of his life and to the uttermost, right? Perfect love. And, and, I, and I say that simply this, what a precious truth to dwell on. What a precious truth to, to dwell on especially considering all the other things that you see going on in these first three verses. Just hang on to that phrase, Jesus loved his disciples, to the end. Hold on to that phrase and that truth as we look at all the things that are going on around it, okay? So have it, first of all, it, we've already been told that Jesus knew, verse 1, that his hour had come to depart out of this world. Jesus knew, he knew already that the the countdown to his agonizing death, and only he knew how agonizing it would be. It It would be only in a few short hours that he would be sweating drops of blood in prayer about this agonizing death. This agonizing death over which he would sweat drops of blood was down to mere hours. And rather than being consumed in his own thoughts, in his own anxieties, his own emotions about this coming ordeal, the fact is most most of us, I'm going to assume that you're like me, and I know myself, I know that I would probably be consumed, uh, completely absorbed in my own mind about what's about to happen to me. Even in that, Jesus' thoughts and care were completely on his disciples and his love for them. Well, that's one thing. Not only his coming ordeal, the hour for him to depart out of this world, not only was that at hand, verse 1, but also mentioned in verse 3, his deity mentioned in verse 3. That Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was soon to return to the right hand of the Father in majesty and glory. I mean, the only reason that that's maybe not uh, hitting us like it should is because we've never seen that glory. But Jesus knew. He was about to... we We don't have any clear conception in our minds of how how far He condescended just to take on our flesh, let alone to be humiliated in the way He would in His death. He was about to return to His exaltation. uh, and, and, And even with that elated thought, that elated reality, that He would soon return to the right hand of the Father. Jesus' thoughts and care was completely on His disciples and His love for them. And not just his coming ordeal from verse 1, not just verse 3 telling us, as Hebrews 12 would put it, the joy set before him, but look at the reality that is just sort of plunked down right on us in verse 2. That the, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Do you think in that moment, sitting around that table and in that room, that the disciples knew anything about this reality? No. No, absolutely not. In fact, look down in verses 27 and 28. Uh, we're told that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That is, Judas, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Uh, the disciples had no idea that this this reality was also in the mix. But that verse 2 is not a throwaway comment. It does show you why Judas was about to do what he was about to do. But in this moment, before Judas did it, right, it just shows you what Jesus was about to go through was not just between him and the Romans and the Jews, but was also with Satan himself. And all the forces of evil. And if that isn't a sobering thought in our minds, it's probably because we have no idea what we're talking about. He knew that Satan himself, Jesus is sitting here with his disciples and Satan is there. And yet his thoughts and care was completely on his disciples and his love for them. The love of Jesus for his own is the opening declaration of this passage. And it's not the, the half-hearted love that is that is, is, is too often true of us. We think about how you love other people. Think about how I love other people. We love to a limit, right? Our love ebbs and flows based on what you do or don't do, or you may do nothing at all. I'm just a, rotten person. <laughs> my love ebbs and flows. Jesus loves to the end. He loves to the uttermost. His, Jesus' love is not the half-hearted love that's, that, that's my love. It's the infinite perfection love of God in Christ. This is his love toward them. This is his love for them. Just I, I think about it in this way, that as he's sitting there in time and space, around that table, Satan is there. His impending ordeal is there. His impending glory is there. But as he's sitting there with his disciples, this love with which he loved them is is love that has its root in eternity past. Like before the creation of the world, he loved them. In his gracious gracious choosing of them to be his own. Where do we do we pull that out of the hat? No, that's what he says uh, in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus is looking at these disciples whom He chose before the creation of the world. That's how deep His love runs. This is this is his this is his um, deepest deepest inclination toward His own. You need to we. We have a tendency to uh, make God in our own image. We have a tendency to make Christ just like us. If you haven't read the book Gentle and Lowly yet by Dane Ortland, I don't know why. (laughs) Read it. Read it. Um, I love the chapter in which he... uh, talks about God's strange work versus His natural work, the strange work versus the natural work of God. And what does he mean by that? Put simply, he says, when you look at the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, look at the Gospels and look, at, look carefully at the language it uses to describe a lot of the actions of God, what you never find, you never find the Scriptures saying that God has to be provoked to love. He never has to be provoked to mercy, provoked to compassion. But he does have to be provoked to anger. He does have to be stirred up to wrath. But he says in that book, "If if you sneak up on God and surprise him, what do you get? What you get is love and compassion and mercy. That's what flows constantly and naturally from him. I mean, when you, when you just step back and, 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 and look at verses 1 to 3 again, there is so much going on. I mean, it's the, it's the Passover, the hour of his death is here, Satan is here in Judas, his betrayer, the completion of his work and his return to glory at the right hand of the Father is here. But where is Jesus looking in all of this? He's looking right at his disciples. What's he doing? He's loved them up to now. He's loving them to the end. But how did he do it? How did he do it? In this passage, how does Jesus express this perfection of love to them? I think we see it in the heart of this whole passage, which is from verses 4 to 11. uh, And it says, we're told in verses 4 and 5, that after supper, Jesus dressed himself as a servant and began doing what a servant would have done for honored guests. He washed their feet. You don't have to have an overactive imagination, really, to imagine how particularly nasty and sort of a humiliating kind of job this would have been. I mean, it was hot where they lived, it was dirty where they lived, they walked most of the places they went in sandals, (laughs) feet were nasty you know, uh, on top of being dirty. And so it was a lowly job. The lowest of servants did it, and Jesus did it. What an, it was such an unexpected turn of events, you know. Um, that's when you get to verse 6, and Peter's like, he's not having any of it. Peter's like, are you are you kidding me? Like Peter's like, I know my feet <laughs> like, uh-uh um, he's like in verse eight, he's like, You're no, you're not ever gonna wash my feet. It's easy for us by the way when we're when we're reading this passage and we've read it a hundred times and we've grown up around this passage, and it's grown up in church and you just you know you just know what happens here, and you kind of always have this gut reaction that Jesus is right, and that's a good gut reaction uh It's easy to sort of see the folly in what Peter's doing in here. At least that you're supposed to see folly in what Peter's doing here. You get what I'm saying? You kind of know that whenever Peter speaks up to Jesus, he's probably going to be wrong. And he is wrong here, right? But let's be honest. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, you can totally understand where Peter was coming from. Ah... Peter, with his own eyes and ears, had seen Jesus heal the sick. I mean, he saw with his own eyes. I mean, just put yourself there. I mean, a man that Peter would have walked by probably at least once a week, Probably for all of his life, this dude sitting by the temple or by the pool begging because he's lame. And all of a sudden, Jesus with a word in this, this man's legs before your very eyes grows strong. And he walks around. He leaps. He praises God. He saw that. He saw, he saw Jesus feed thousands of people with A little bit of food. What? He saw Jesus walk on water. He himself walked on water to Jesus almost all the way. He saw Jesus raise the stinking dead. Literally. Cast out demons. And on top of it it all... Jesus transfigured right before his very eyes, and if you remember that story, Peter's the one is basically he's the one that spoke up and he says, uh, "Guys, we probably shouldn't be here." Don't you? And don't think of that as just like a Bible story. He saw that, and he was like, "I don't need to be here." What if you saw all that? And then that same one began do the, doing right in front of you this lowly, this humiliating job. What would be your first thought? And you can imme- easily imagine thinking, this is really beneath his dignity. Uh, it probably seemed totally backwards. I mean, if anybody should be washed anybody's feet, Peter's probably thinking, I should be probably washing your feet, and I don't even really want to wash your feet. Peter's probably thinking, at the very least, this should be the other way around. So he's like, no way. Jesus initially tells him in verse 7 that he knows that Peter doesn't understand yet, but he soon will. Peter's still like, nope, sorry. And Jesus tells him in verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no share in me. Jesus alone in that moment probably knew fully what he meant there. If I don't wash you, you have no share in me. Like, Peter, Peter probably didn't get all that Jesus meant there. Jesus alone knew that. And what he meant was that the symbolism of this ignoble and humiliating task was pointing forward to a yet even deeper humiliation that was coming for Jesus that really would wash away his sins. And if they wanted part in that, they would have... if they. Uh, and if they wanted part in that, they would have no... They did, If they didn't want a part of that, they would have no inheritance and blessing in Christ. Peter didn't get all of that in that moment. Jesus himself had just told him that he wouldn't understand it now, but he would understand it later. But he understood enough in that moment when Jesus said that, that he spoke up again in verse 9 and said, Well, then please wash all of me. Jesus, to make sure that they didn't un- misunderstand and think that this foot washing was what was cleaning them, Uh he told him in verse 10 that they were already clean. How are they already clean? He had not yet gone to the cross. Well, in view of the fact that they were already trusting him and him as their Savior and Lord, and to in view uh, that Jesus knew his sacrifice for their sins was forthcoming. But notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. He knows that not all of them are clean, because he already knew that Judas didn't believe and he knew Judas was going to betray him. In fact, he'll say later in verse 18 that Judas', Judas betrayal was prophesied in Psalm 41, nine, which just goes to show you that even in starker detail, the depth of Jesus' humility, humility because Jesus washed Judas' feet too. I mean, can you imagine that? What did Jesus do? He loved them. How did He love them? Hear it in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the cross would be in a matter of hours. For now, he gave them a a foreshadow of that hour of humiliation by stooping to wash their feet. It's it's hard to imagine the depth of the love of Jesus. I mean, like I said, don't, don't make Jesus in your own image. Let Jesus define himself for you, and this is how he does it. They had been with Jesus for three years, and this act of his love still shocked them. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, but full of what? Grace and truth. Full of it. But why? Why did... What did He do? He loved them to the end. How did He do it? Taking the form of a servant. Lowly job. Washing their dirty feet. Why? Why did He do it? Well... You, you may think we have already um, addressed the why. Why did he do it? Uh, well, Jesus said, when Peter said, Nope, to Jesus, Pete, Jesus had already said he would have no share in, in him if not. And, and I mean, that is a little of why. Why did Jesus wash their feet? To foreshadow their own coming salvation that's about to happen through his humiliation and sacrifice. That's, that's a big Why? But as we keep reading the passage, there's a broader answer to the why than merely that. Jesus asks them point blank in verse 12 if they understood why he washed their feet. Look there. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? So if he's at this point, he's asking the question, do you you understand what I did to you? Then the full answer hasn't yet already been given to us as to why he did it. Um, And he tells them twice in the next two verses that he did it for their example. That they should love each other and love other people in the same way that he has shown his love to them. He says in verse 13 that they're right to call him teacher and Lord. And if this is what he as their teacher is teaching them uh, to do to others not necessarily washing others' feet, but in humility, counting other people more significant and important than yourself, shock people with the selflessness of your love for them. And if He is actually their Lord, and He loved them in this sacrificial way, then none of us who follow Him are too high for this lowly calling. unless we forget all that Jesus is saying when he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and so you're right. Unless we uh, forget all that he means by that, he tells them in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Uh, That's verse 18, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I am He. When they heard Jesus formulate a sentence like that, it would have been significant. Uh, first of all, if you've been with us in John from the beginning, you might guess, and you'd be right, that at the end of verse 19, when you when it says, You may believe that I am he, in Greek, it's what? I am. Now you may believe that I am. He takes the very name of God himself. Burning bush, Exodus 3, I am who I am. Jesus takes that on himself, that you may believe that I am. But not only is Jesus there taking the name of God for himself, but he's, he is doing what the Lord does in the Old Testament routinely to demonstrate his deity and his lordship declaring the future before it comes to pass. That's why I said when he formulated a sentence like this, it would have been significant to them. Let me just show you some examples. Hold your place in John 13. Turn back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Let me just give you three examples just in Isaiah alone in succession. So Isaiah 44, first of all, Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah says, he writes, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old, and declare it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. No, I know not any. What is, the, what is the evidence that there is no God but Him in this passage? He declares beforehand what is to come before it happens, and it happens. Look in the next chapter in verse 21, 45, 21. God is comparing Himself to the idols of the people, and he says, declare and present your case. Let them, let them, that is the idols, take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who, declare it, who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. What is, what is the evidence that he alone is God? He declared it of old. He told it long ago, and it happens. Look in the next chapter. In chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Going back to John 13. Jesus, in same form, says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Jesus is demonstrating this same foreknowledge because he shares the same deity of the Father. What's the significance here? This is the one who washed their feet. And he said in verse 16, A servant is not greater than his master will say it again in, this, in the passage that we study next week. Love one another in the same way that I've loved you. You love one another. Why? In that later passage, verses 35, uh, 34 and 35, in that passage, it's so that the world will know that we are His disciples by our love for one another. But look at verse 20. Why here? Why is His why is he saying follow his example to us here in this passage, verse 20? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives, the one who, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. What is he saying there? He's saying that when, when they receive you, they receive me. And when they reject you, they reject me. Jesus is preparing them for the soon reality that he will leave and then he will work in this world through them he will work in this world through his disciples through his church Hence, the New Testament will later call the church his body in the world Christ's presence in the world through us and how does he want his presence to be seen And known in the world through his disciples, in those who love as they have themselves been loved by Jesus. If if we're not known by our love, not just for each other, if we're not known by our love, but for the for the world, remember Jesus washed Judas' feet. We're not just doing it wrong. We're misrepresenting Christ. Like we're taking his name in vain. And the good thing is, Jesus says elsewhere, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. So the calling comes down to us to think constantly on the love of Christ how he loves us to the end and the depth of the forgiveness we have in him for our countless sins if if we're that kind of people overcome by the love of Christ for ourselves fully undeserved because of our sins we will love others with the same love with which we've been loved may it be for the next few minutes, well, normally we pray together in, in pairs or in groups of two or three. Uh, rather today, um, in light of what we've just seen, we're going to spend just a few minutes in, uh, in quiet reflection, quiet prayer. And what I want you to just quietly reflect on is how much Jesus with full knowledge loves you. Did you notice how many times in this passage it says what Jesus knew? He knew his hour had come. He knew Satan had entered into, into Judas. He knew that he was about to go to the Father. He knew whom he had chosen. He knew, he knew, he knew. In full knowledge of you, he loves you to the end. Reflect on that for just a few minutes and I'll close this in prayer.